I'm really thankful just on a personal basis to be able to have Dr. Harry Park with us. I, it's been fun to uh, have many of you be able to meet her. And uh, Harry uh, just has a sweet heart for God. Um, she's a very gifted linguist and translator, and God's using her in some locations that are very, very remarkable. And I hope she'll be able to, well, she will be able to chance to, she will have a chance tonight to tell you a little bit about Bible translation work and her ministry. Um, Dr. Harry is one of the most, I would just describe Harry as a, as a lady of prayer. Um, burdened for prayer, faithful in prayer, and I think God is honoring and blessing that. So we're glad that she's here as part of this conference and looking forward to having you uh, tell us a little bit more about Bible translation. Thanks, Harry. Good evening. Today I am here to sell Bibles. <laughs> I hope you are able to pay. <laughs> All right. My, yeah. I'm a Bible translation mission. The reason that I mentioned that is I heard several times, I go to different churches, at the end I hear, what, what is she doing? <laughs> right. So I'm a Bible translation missionary, helping language groups, helping believers who doesn't have Bible yet. So some language groups have nothing. So God gave them um, yeah, New Testament. Some language group has New Testament, but next level is... New Testament is Psalms and Proverbs, and this is whole Bible. So there are language groups who doesn't have Bible yet, and the language groups who have a New Testament and waiting for whole Bible, whole counsel of God in their language. So God called me to serve in Bible translation. So I thank God, and I, today I wanted to share a, a little bit about it. I hope to make it on time. Okay. You already know my name, Harry Park, and I'm serving with Bible International Baptist Mid Mission. And I already, uh, yes, God saved me, and I decided to follow Jesus. And God not only changing my eternal destination, but God also changed my occupation as well. So I was originally a farmer, and then God uh, made me a professional student for 14 years. And then, um, yeah, Bible translation missionary. I am serving with Bible International, and it is located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So half of the year, I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, working at the BI office. And half of the years, I travel visiting different countries to help language groups to uh, to help to have Bible in their language. The Bible Intonation currently has 45 projects around 17 countries. Among these projects, God helped me to help about six countries and seven language groups. Yeah, at Bible International, I do researching and producing translation resources so that national translators and consultants could save time for, uh, to res uh, do research and then finding answers. What is this animal? Because many of our terms in Hebrew, in Old Testament, just a few times, one or two times. So there are a few, those are things that we need to, as much as possible, we don't want to make it exact. 
So those things I'm doing for national translators so that they, could, they, they just look at the resources that I develop and they could just translate it right into their language. And then when I travel, I lead translation workshop, normally holds up two weeks at a time. And then also I train different seminars for national translators. So I have a few slides so that you can see the scenery, what's going on, what happens during the workshops. So this is Tenek language. Uh, translation team, Tenek is a language of Mexico, and we checked Poland episodes. We met in San Antonio, Texas. And this one is Langlong, is a language of India. We met at Palapur, and we checked Daniels, Book of Daniels, and we are happy to finish um, Book of Daniels. And uh, Haitian Creole is a language of Haiti, and we checked Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And also we did some computer training, which is needed uh, to do, to expedite the translation process. And Akkad is a language of Thailand, and China, Myanmar, Laos, and Vietnam as well. So, yes, so we are, whenever we have workshop, we have uh, those language representatives. This time, I was here last week, I think. Yeah, last week, there are four lab, uh, four language representatives were there, four nationalities, like from China, and then Myanmar, and Laos, and Thailand. So we are, some, uh, some uh, participants were not able to come before, so we are very happy to have them. And then we are, uh, Akka translator is working on to invite the representative from Vietnam as well, so that all five language groups get together and make a translation that work for each, language, uh, each country, not just Thailand, but the Akka people, Akka believers in Vietnam also find this new translation. This is Akka New Testament, Samjang Proverbs. And so the concern about this translation, Akka translation is the translation accurate, natural, clear in Akka that are accepted by all those um, believers in that five countries. So uh, Akka language teams are praying diligently so that the, those are our translation would be very um, pleasing to God first and for yes, Akka people. And Akka this one is actually, I prepared for Pastor Gary, because Pastor Gary was a big instrument to fund this project, New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. So, I, yes, this is, I just put it. <laughs> yes, this is Akka dedication service. So you would see this clothing is Akka. I hope that you feel the joy and grateful heart. And these are the uh, attendees on that day. And what's next for the Akka team? They wanted to reach out, as I mentioned, with this Bible to their, their own people in five different countries. And also they, are, they resume translating Old Testament. So they are working diligently. And we finished our Genesis last week. And we are continuing on in numbers. 
Yeah, this time I wanted to share a little bit details of how we do Bible translation work. So one slide with a Langlong team that is on site. Translators go to the, the location to hold translation workshop, and another time we stay in Grand Rapids office in Michigan and do workshop via by Skype. That's a new technology that we are able to do. So Hakka-Chin language is a language of Myanmar and was adopted in 2016. And this team is the team that I'm going to meet about 10 days in Myanmar, Yangon, Myanmar. And there are these, these five members are co-members of Hakka-Chin team. There are more in Hakka city, in mountains, but these are co-five members. I would like to introduce the name and also their role, what they are doing to have a Bible in their language. Pastor Chung is a translator. He translates from New King James to Hakka. So you see the empty space. That is the, uh, the space that he would translate. Actually, this was taken in December. At the time, he was translating Deuteronomy. And um, Pastor Jacob and his crew, uh, his pastors, uh, colleagues, they, they are part of a read and review committee. And they were reading through Leviticus at the time so that they could see whether this tr translation in Hakka would be natural and smooth, whether there's any spelling error, or whether there's any pronunciation or punctuation issue. And then that, when that text was approved, then that, was, that is sent to back translator, who is a pastor Paul. At the time, he was checking Ruth. And that translation, many people ask, are you translating from Hebrew to Hakka? Actually, probably you guess, you already figured out, I'm not. I'm getting help from back translator. As he fill out the gloss on the Hakka word, then I'm reading it and analyzing how that translation was done according to Hebrew language. So as you see, the first column there is Hebrew, and then middle, upper, upper one is Hakka, and then lower bottom there is a Hakka Chin, back translation. So I am comparing Hebrew and back translation and commenting on Hakkatin text. So you would see like little dots, pink and blue. Yeah, those things are my notes. And then things that I need to ask translators during translation workshop. So these are Hakkatin team. And we are working together to produce a conservative Bible for Hakka believers. Conservative uh, mean by accurate according to original language and natural and clear in Hakkatin believers' ears and also stylish because we want our Bible to best quality as much as possible. So we are praying and we are asking God's help so that we could produce, we work together and produce a good Bible for God's glory and for his people's edification. Okay, I think Pastor is standing there, so I must, uh, yeah, there is, a, <laughs> yes, so, so there is joy that God gave me as I work as a translation missionary. So I got 
I get to travel different countries, and I get to try different food. So you can maybe you can recognize some dish dish here. And then most joy that I get more more and more as I get to work on Bible translation, I find joy in knowing God because I get to study Hebrew and Greek and also different languages. Each, each language has a different way of expressing the thoughts and concepts and words. So it is joy to finding out how people think in the same concept. So I thank God and yes, he's good. God is good. And also uh, I, I'm thankful that he used me, called me to make him known through translation work, not only producing the Bible, but through the people that I'm meeting on the way. Yeah, translation team members, uh, yes, or the ladies who are receiving Bible as, I, we, as we hold reading workshop, we call, when we produce Bible, we cannot just give this Bible because it is, it is hard sometimes, too many words, and sometimes it's hard to follow the flow. So we do reading workshop. So we give some kind of a teaching. So give a outline, a theology, some basic um, themes of the book. And ladies yeah, who attended this service, they were happy and also they were thankful to have God's word. For example, the lady that um, who is holding the the poster, that is an actual drawing. Ladies read through uh, 10 chapters each group, and they were drawing what they found in, that, in those 10 chapters. And one lady called Sung Sung, she is a seamstress, and I think late 20, and she said that she heard about son, uh, sons of Israel, people of Israel, Israelites, from here and there. But she wondered why there are so many Names of Israel. Is it God favoring only those people? But through this reading workshop on Genesis, the uh, Sung Sung sister Sung Sung said she understood that God was faithful to His word according to Genesis thirty, uh, Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, and God is faithfully using Abraham and his descendants and Israelites to send Jesus and also preserve his word through his people. So she, I was so happy to hear that. And even, uh, yes, God is good. All right. And then this is uh, my um, favorite verse. Probably you heard this verse over and over. Uh, this is Jeremiah 33, verse, verses 23. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God, please him. For he who comes to, him, to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I wanted to see other believers also have the same message that I I got, and I wanted to share the same joy and hope and comfort as a Korean uh, girl in small country like a pastor, although I'm the same, like a farmer's daughter, 
And yes, and then traveling different countries and studying in overseas and especially in the U.S. It's a, it was a long time, a lonely time, yeah, time of um, yes, uh, different issues. But those verses, the God of the Bible, God who answers, God who responds, God who rewards, that God was holding me through. And I want the believers in different countries to also have the same joy and hope and comfort through God, his word. And uh, yesterday I asked, how do you read? How can you read that one? Maybe doctor, you could read since he was in Akka. Yeah. So that one, uh, I hope that Eli is here. Maybe not. Yeah, this is uh, Elohim is Hebrew, God. In English, God. And Akka, Sangpamie. Yeah, that Sangpamie spoke in Hebrew. I tried to memorize. Yes, I, I, I cannot read. <laughs> Create a lie, So I'll call to me. I'll answer you. God spoke in Hebrew, and that same God wants to convey the same message in same impact in Akka and all the language around the world. And this is Akka, Jeremiah thirty-three three, and this is Hebrew 11.6. So that same God called me and also calling you, and also thank you all for your prayers and also support, and I especially as a Korean lady or girl, um, I appreciate your ministry for Korean students. I really impressed by your generosity and kindness and patience to your students, and uh, yes, may, may God bless you, and continuously be faithful to God's call as you serve God's people who came from different countries. Okay, thank you so much. I'd like to just pray with Harry together. Harry talked about 14 years of training. So a Bible translation consultant is a uniquely gifted person, just naturally uniquely gifted. But on top of their, like there might be some young people here that would, if you have sort of a natural, uh, you know, ease with languages. You never know what God might do with that. If you learn languages quickly, um, are interested in linguistics, never know what God might do with that. But in addition to that natural ability to learn languages, Bible Translation Consultant has graduate level training, which means they'd be able to teach at a, at a college level in uh, graduate level training in theology in original languages, so that's either Hebrew or Greek, and most of the time both, and then linguistics. So all three disciplines, you have to have graduate level degrees in all three disciplines, and then just the ability to pick up languages. And so very gifted, very uniquely gifted people. At the um, BI office in Grand Rapids, they play Scrabble in Hebrew. It's true. There's (laughs) There's a Scrabble table with Hebrew letters, I did not, of course. In fact, I used to tell people they needed a dumb guy like me to kind of balance out all the smart people at uh, Bibles International. But God's really blessed uh, Hayri in many ways, and we want to pray together for her tonight. Father, I thank you so much for your, uh, the way that you call us. Uh, from the time Hayri was a young girl, you were gifting her for this ministry, and it's seen in so many ways. Um, you allowed her the discipline to to work and train uh, so many years in some, in some difficult circumstances, but 
She did it. She pressed through. And now um, you are using that training to bear fruit. It's hard to even fathom the eternal significance of what's happening in these, here we talked about six different languages around the world that do not yet have a scripture in their language. And, uh, and as they do a, a New Testament and an Old Testament, you're going to multiply that ministry for generations to come. Um, if you tarry, uh, your word is going to continue to bear fruit generation after generation after generation. And this is the kind of work that Hayri's a part of. And I thank you for her. I pray for your blessing on her, on her ministry. Um, would you keep her healthy? Would you provide for her? Um, would you continue to bless her, not just in the translation work, but in the discipleship that goes along with many, many people from many different languages? Thank you for the privilege of uh, us as a church family being able to hear her heart and her testimony. We'd ask that she'd be encouraged by her time with us and that you would put your hand in a special way of blessing on her and her life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your Bible tonight. Let's go to, to Philippians. Not what we normally think of as a uh, uh, missionary text, so to speak, tonight. But I, I do want to remind you of what we've said each and every uh, time together in the Word as we've thought about this whole theme of untold millions or untold billions. Uh, each time we've emphasized that untold billions of unbelievers remaining still untold is a clarion call. By the way, some have asked, what does clarion mean? Clarion is, is something that is very clear, crystal clear call. And so it's a clarion call, crystal clear call to untold millions of believers to do everything possible to get the gospel to them. And so we've looked at different ways that we ought to be doing that. We ought to be doing that by loving the lost like the Lord loves the lost. We ought to be doing that by spreading the gospel uh, to, so that members of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will someday worship at the feet of Jesus. We ought to do that by helping in the harvest for souls. And then tonight we're going to be looking at, we ought to be doing that by joyfully uh, giving, by being joyful givers, by being joyfully uh, generous, by being joyfully generous with the Lord's gospel preaching servants. And so tonight, tonight we're going to look at, at Philippians chapter 4 because Philippians chapter 4 is a, is a bit of a thank you note um, from the Apostle Paul to a church that had been very generous to him. And so before we think about that, though, I want to think about the connection between that and, and missions because you understand that that scripturally, missions and giving are inextricably linked to one another. Missions and giving are inextricably linked to one another. God's pattern in the New Testament is that local churches recognize and then send and then support missionaries to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Sadly, though, giving toward missions is, is really falling on hard times. I realize we are independent Baptists, we're not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, but it was a bit shocking when five years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention in, uh, announced what they were needing to do in connection with their international mission board, in that they had to cut between six and 800 positions with their international mission board in order to cover the $21 million shortfall 
for the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and I realize we are independent Baptists and we're a smaller slice of, of global missions than Southern Baptists are, but, but the reality of the matter is that, that independent Baptists are facing some of the same realities in terms of finances and in terms of financial struggles. Um, it's our joy at First Baptist Church of Elyria, Ohio, to be a, a, a church that, that is the sending church for a number of missionaries around the planet. And some of those missionaries are right now in the process of trying to raise support uh, to get to their field for the very first time. And one of the things that we are discovering is that a number of them are having a hard time raising that support. And, and some of that is even just even getting their foot in the door to a church. As a matter of fact, they report back to me on a monthly basis, fill out these forms and tell me how many contacts they've made and how many phone calls and how many emails and how many letters and how many, all those different things. And one of the things they're finding is if they make 10 phone calls to a, to a pastor, to a church on the mainland, uh, they are lucky if they get one response. They, if they leave 10 messages, voice messages or whatever the case may be, they're lucky if they get one response. And if they get that response, oftentimes what they get from the pastor is something along the lines of, I'm sorry, we can't have you in. Our church is not taking on new missionaries. And sometimes the pastor even expands on that and says, you know, we're having a hard time just paying the light bill and paying the pastor. And, and so we, there's just no way that we can take on new missionaries. And so as a result of that, we have some that are on deputation. I think we have a couple right now that's approaching the five-year mark, and they're just at about 70%. Uh, after having been on deputation, trying to raise their support for, for about five years. And, and I'm hearing that that's becoming more and more the norm, not, not the exception, because of some of the financial challenges within our, our churches. And so when you hear things like that or you experience things like that, you, you can't help but wonder, why is that happening? Well, then you do a little more research, and one of the things you'll discover is that part of why that's happening is because of what the average Christian is giving. The average Christian in America is only giving 2.5% of their income to the local church. I don't know about you, but that's pretty shocking to me. Uh, because since I was a, a spiritual babe in Christ, uh, I remember being taught, and, and I trust you as well, the importance of, of giving. And, and I don't know where this church stands on whether it's tithing or grace giving or some combination of the two in terms of the Old Testament concept of, of tithing and the New Testament concept of grace giving. Personally, I think that in light of the combination of the Old Testament and the New Testament together, that tithing is the starting place for giving for the, for the New Testament believer. It's not the, oh, you know, that's law, I don't have to live by that, so I should give less. I think really the mindset of someone who has been saved by grace and living under grace, that, that tithing is really this, just the bare bottom beginning place for giving. That's my personal perspective on that. And yet it's, it's puzzling to me that the average Christian only gives 2.5% of, of their income to the, to the local church and to the Lord's work. It's no wonder in our day and age that, that, that we're struggling to support missionaries. And if we're ever going to take the, this gospel message to the untold billions that need Jesus Christ, our generation, and people like you and people like me are going to have to step up and give generously or it's not going to happen by, from a human standpoint, from, you know, in terms of humanly speaking. It's so vital that we, we give. And so I, I know that the simple answer then in relationship to this might be just simply that Christians ought to give more, but there's probably more to it than that. And I think actually the more to it than that is what's addressed in Philippians chapter 4. 
in terms of some of the heart issues, in terms of some of the backdrop of what goes on in a person's heart and life that, that, that the Apostle Paul directs his readers to, his listeners to, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And I want to make sure you understand the context of Philippians 4, 10 through 20, in that Paul was sent by the Lord and the church at Antioch to take the gospel to throughout the Roman Empire, primarily to the, to the Gentiles. He, his only means of regular support was his tent-making uh, job on the side and the sporadic gifts of churches and people. And so he had gone out by faith, trusting God to meet his needs and was faithful. And when necessary, he, he made tents as a way to support himself. And, and at the same time, a number of different churches supported him when they could. Uh, when we find him here in the book of Philippians, he has been arrested uh, for preaching the gospel and, and shipped to Rome awaiting trial and, uh, and, and is at this point under house arrest. As a matter of fact, he was probably at this point even chained to a Roman soldier and uh, awaiting what the next step would be. And so he was not allowed to practice his trade. He was dependent upon the support of others completely. And so imagine with me being the Apostle Paul, imagine being chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest, not really able to get out and preach the gospel, although I think every one of those Roman soldiers heard the gospel, okay? And, and, and not knowing, literally not knowing where your next meal came from, because in, a, in, a Roman, in, a, in the Roman penal system, you know, they didn't provide you with the food. The only food you got was what food was brought in by somebody else. And so he's totally dependent upon the generosity of others. And all of a sudden, one day, as he's sitting there chained to this, I just can't help but think of it as this big, ugly dude called a Roman soldier that probably didn't smell very nicely. Uh, all of a sudden, wa- walks in this man by the name of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus comes through that door, which in and of itself was mo- no small feat for him to have traveled over a thousand miles via boat. It would have taken him weeks to have gotten there at significant expense and even risks to his own life and safety. But in walks Epaphroditus, and after initial probably hugs and catching up on the church in Philippi and talking about family, Epaphroditus might have reached into his robe and pulled out several valuable Roman coins and explained this is from the Philippian church. The church of Philippi, where you preached the gospel and Lydia trusted Christ and the Philippian jailer trusted Christ and and others later placed their faith in the Lord Lord Jesus. They have sent this gift and this will help care for your needs. How do you think the Apostle Paul would have responded. I, I can't help but imagine the elation and the, and the joy and the, and the thrill in his heart to, to firsthand experience the love of God's people in a very tangible way as they gave to minister to him and to meet his financial needs. But he didn't just express his gratitude one-on-one with Epaphroditus. He expressed his gratitude in a very real sense in a thank you note. And guess what that thank you note is? That thank you note's the book of Philippians. And there's a whole lot more in the book of Philippians than the thank you note, but really by the time he gets to chapter 4, it is in a sense, as we will read tonight, it's really his, the last portion anyway is his thank you note to this very generous church that it ministered to him, the missionary, and taking care of his needs. And so prompted by the Spirit of God, Paul penned this inspired book in response to the generosity of the Philippian church. He concluded that letter as follows. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, 
that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's thank you note to the Philippians for their generosity in the part that they played in making his missionary ministry possible. And in, and in sending that note, he communicates to us and to generations the importance of giving and giving joyfully to the Lord's work. Because not only did it bring joy to him, but when, when you have given to somebody and you know that your giving has brought joy to someone else, do you know what that does for you as well? It brings joy to you as well. Or as Jesus put it in Acts chapter 20. Verse 35, or he's quoted in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it's, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so tonight I want us to think about three keys to, to joyful generosity and the importance of being joyful and generous givers in relationship to the cause of missions and the cause of Christ. The, the first key is this, that's the key of contentment. Contentment. You, you see that communicated by the Apostle Paul in verses 10 through 12 when he says this in verse 11 specifically. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. Paul here, of course, is speaking on a personal level. He's not so much preaching to them to, them to be content, but he really, in the process of, of, of sharing his own experience, is modeling this, this whole idea of contentment. And he, he shares with the Philippians and he shares with us a number of principles in relationship to contentment. Because you understand that these principles, they're, they're vital to Christian living. The, the principle of contentment is vital to Christian living, but it's also vital to Christian giving. Contentment is vital to Christian living, but it's also vital to Christian giving. And so notice a couple of principles that Paul here shares in, in verses 11 and 12 in relationship to contentment. First of all, he shares the principle of the fact that contentment is a learned virtue. And by that, the Bible means, Paul means, that we are not naturally contented people. I mean, think about a baby when it comes out of the womb. As soon as it's smacked on the backside, what does it do? It cries, right? And maybe that's not discontent. I, I mean, if somebody smacked me on the backside that hard, I'd cry too, right? But, but in reality, I mean, it just from, from birth, everyone is discontent. Everyone wants something. 
And so contentment is a virtue that is, that is learned. It's learned by experience. As a matter of fact, that's the way Paul describes it in verse 11 when it says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And the, the Greek word that is used there means to learn by experience. It's not so much a head knowledge as it is a life knowledge in terms of practice. And even the tense that is used there implies process. You don't immediately become content. It's part of the sanctification process in your life. And so it's a learned virtue. And, and even the word content that he uses is, is a significant one. It's, it's a word that means inner satisfaction or inner sufficiency or to invent a word, inner enoughness. Inner enoughness. It's a sense that, that God is giving you just what you need. Contentment. It was significant in that way. And, and, and in the day and age in which Paul was writing, that was, a, that was an important philosophical discussion. As a matter of fact, if you were to read the writings of, of people like Socrates and Aristotle, they taught a lot about contentment and the virtue of contentment. And one of the questions the average person on the street would say is, how can you become content? Maybe in our terms, in modern day, we might, might ask the question, how much is enough? How much is enough? And of course, you know, someone has said, just a little bit more. Is that not true of human nature? That human nature says, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. What Paul, though, is saying is this. What the Bible is saying is this. How much is enough is to be answered in this way. Enough is exactly what God gives you. Enough is exactly what God gives you. And the way to learn contentment is to, to live with a sense of God has given me exactly what I need for today. And I am happy with that. I am content with that. I have a, a sense of, of, of enoughness that he's given me enough. Just what I need. And so contentment is a learned virtue. Secondly, contentment is satisfaction then with God's provision. And I would add to that, in, in every circumstance. No matter what you're facing, whether it's good times or bad times. Because that's what he describes here in verse 12. When he, when he uses these terms, he says, in verse 12, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And so what he's saying is that it's a, it's a sense of satisfaction with God's provision, even when it doesn't seem like God's providing. I mean, that's the whole idea of being abased. The idea of the word abased there is to, to bring low. It's, it, it would be a word that would be used to describe a, a river during a drought, Instead of it being full of water, the water's so shallow that maybe it's barely running. That's the idea of, of the word that, that is used here, the word abased. And of course, abound is the opposite. Abound means to overflow. It's a, it's a word of abundance. And so he says that I've learned to be content when, when I'm abased, when I don't have much. And he even describes that in terms of hunger. And I've learned to be content when, when I have more than I need. I mean, it's just overflowing, and yet, when are we apt to be content? We're apt to be content when things are abounding, right? We're apt to be content. And I don't just mean from a physical standpoint or material standpoint, but even just in life. When, when life is good and it doesn't seem like I have very many problems today, I'm really content. But when all of a sudden everything seems to be going wrong and everything is different than maybe the way I would have planned it in my life, that's when I have a hard time being content. And Paul here is saying that contentment is not a matter of your circumstances. Contentment is not a matter of what's going right or what's going wrong. Contentment is a matter of trusting the Lord. 
It's the mindset of with the Lord, I have everything I really need. Remember, this is a man who's writing who doesn't know where his next meal's coming from. This is a man who is under house arrest and up until this point has no money probably. He's facing the, the prospect of death for preaching the gospel. And he says, I'm content because I'll, I have all I need in Christ in my relationship with him. Johnny Erickson Tata, who lost her ability to, to move because of an accident when she was 17 years old and has been a quadriplegic in a wheelchair ever since, put it this way. She said, contentment is an internal quietness of heart that gladly submits to God in all circumstances. It's a quietness of heart that submits, gladly submits to God in all circumstances. You realize that when it comes to material things especially, contentment is kind of anti-American. I mean, think about that. Contentment is anti-American. Americans are trained from childhood in the school of discontent. We really are. I mean, think about it. The way you were raised, the way I was raised, we're, we're really trained in that. I, and I know I'm going to date myself. Anybody under 40 is not going to understand what I'm talking about. So ask an old person afterwards tonight, okay? I just qualified everybody over 40 as old because I am one, okay? But I remember as, as a child growing up that about the day after Thanksgiving or so, something would arrive in the mail at my house. And those of you that are my age or are starting to smile or older, smile and nod your head. What would arrive at your house? It would come from one of two places. It would either come from JCPenney's or Sears and Roebuck. The catalog, that's right. Again, if you don't know what we're talking about, ask an old person after the service tonight what that is. But what it was was this great, depending on the year and depending on whether or not you just got the wish book version or you got the whole version that looked like a phone book, with that, which that dates me too, the fact that I refer to a phone book. All right. And, and in, that, in that catalog was everything under the sun that JCPenney's or Sears and Roebuck sold that any child would ever want for Christmas. And so as a kid, I remember the Sears one especially showing up, and I think they were the ones that called it the wish book. The wish book. And just sitting there and, and going through that and turning page after page after page. And what I would do as a kid is I'd get my pen out, and I'd circle things for my mom and dad, and then I'd dog-ear the pages. And so this entire catalog would be filled with all these things that I, that I had circled and that I'd turn the page over so that my mom and dad, I could hand them that big old, probably not with one hand, it was so big, with both hands, I could hand them that big old catalog and say, you wanted a Christmas list from me? Here you go, Mom. This is what I want. And, and no, no parent, probably shy of a millionaire, could have afforded all the things that I had circled and all the pages that I had marked of all the things that I wanted for Christmas. And yet I was, quote-unquote, reared in that school of discontent, that school of materialism, that school of I need all of this stuff that was almost like a, a, a rite of passage for me as an American because we're trained to be such materialists. And it, and it really breeds discontent in us. And I know that... The days of, of, of Sears wish, wish books and Penny's catalogs have passed us by, but the reality of the matter is it's not any better today. I mean, after all, what is all advertising about? What is so much of what you see on television about? In, in terms of, uh, of all the things that you don't have or how much better this is and how much better that is, and even so much of social media is all about. All of that is just breeding within us this spirit of discontent that my life really isn't nearly as good as this or as that or it could be this or I could have that or whatever the case may be. And it breeds discontent in us. 
And so, as a result of that, for many of Americans, they have bought that hook, line, and sinker in terms of a way of life. In terms of even how they live, in terms of standard of living, and what they buy, and how they spend their money. And as a result of that, that's had a significant impact on their ability to give. Someone put it this way, we're trained to want what we don't really need so that we buy things we can't really afford in order to impress people we don't really like. There's truth in that. There's truth in that. And that whole consumer debt crisis in America is being fed by this spirit of discontent and Christians don't even think about it in terms of living that lifestyle. Many, American, many Americans owe more on their credit cards than their parents owed on their mortgages at the same age. Do you realize that? Many Americans today owe more on their credit cards than their parents did on their mortgages at the same exact age. Why? Because it's more, it's bigger, it's better, I have to buy. And by the way, nowadays I can just go to Amazon and, I, and have it delivered. Maybe not here on the island. I don't know if you can get it the next day here on the island. Maybe it takes two, right? But... but I mean, you can have it if you want it. Amazon, Amazon has it, right? And so it, it feeds that whole spirit of, if I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied. I've got to have more. I've got to have bigger. I've got to have better. And as a result of that, many Christians don't give like they should because they don't live like they should in terms of how they spend, what they buy, and what they have to have. Many Christians don't give like they should because they don't live like they should. My grandmother used to say this on a regular basis, and it kind of stuck in my head. She used to say, it's not a matter of the high cost of living. It's a matter of the cost of high living. It's not a matter of the cost, uh, high cost of living. It's the cost of high living. And I think she was right. A generation two generations ago, of someone who had survived the Great Depression. She understood the significance of that. And so one of the greatest challenges facing global missions is the condition of the American church financially. Rampant materialism and its spawn, consumer debt, make it tough for believers to give like they should. And so if you, if you want to be a giver like God wants you to be, one of the things you have to decide to do is to live differently to live differently, to be content with what you have and, and, and to, to cut unnecessary spending and to live within your means and to get out of debt and to, and to do your best to stay out of debt as much as possible, driven by a spirit of contentment instead of a spirit of discontentment that will oftentimes sink you financially and keep you from giving like God wants you to give. And so it's no wonder Paul talked about the importance of contentment. It's essential to giving like the Lord wants us to give. First key to joyful generosity is contentment. The second key to joyful generosity is confidence. Confidence. Notice the way the Bible puts it in verse 13, a familiar verse to us. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then he states it in a little bit different manner. Again, another very familiar verse of Scripture, verse 19, when he says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches, in glory by Christ Jesus. And so confidence in, in two ways. First of all, confidence in the Lord's strength, verse 13. I can. There's a complete confidence. 
Not I might, but I can do all things through Christ. And and in that, there's this implication that he's talking about God's will. I know there are people that have taken these verses to mean all kinds of things they really didn't apply to in terms of athletic feats and other things like that. But what he's talking about is, I can do all things that are are God's will for my life. Something that God wants me to do. And I can do it through Christ. So confidence, number one, in the Lord's strength. Through Christ, it's not a matter of self-reliance. Who strengthens me? Who empowers is the word that's used there, literally empowers me. And and the context here is contentment. I can be content when I lack. I can accomplish God's will. So right on the heels of this lesson about contentment, he's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So part of that is is that God can enable me to be content. And so confidence in, in the Lord's strength, but then secondly, confidence in the Lord's supply. Notice what it says in verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And so he, he, he refers to God's promises to supply our needs. Someone put it this way, God promises to supply your needs, not your greeds. Significant difference, is there not? To supply your needs, not your greeds. And this, this also is a conditional promise that's so important for us to understand because it's in the context of God says, I'm going to supply all your needs when you do what? When you're generous. He's speaking in the context of the previous verses about the generosity of the Philippian church. And Paul is saying that God's going to supply your needs because you've supplied the needs of your missionary, the Apostle Paul. And so when you trust God... To, to, to meet your needs in such a way that you're willing to give to meet somebody else's needs, then God's going to supply your needs. That's important for us to understand because many people try to claim this promise who aren't giving like they ought to give and aren't living like they ought to live. And they're saying, well, God's promised to supply all of my needs when I'm unfaithful to him in terms of the stewardship of the things he's given me and in terms of my willingness to give to others. Don't claim a promise that doesn't fit. Don't claim a promise that doesn't apply. And so it, it, it's a matter of trusting the Lord to supply. And giving oftentimes is a test of that. You know, one of the terms that I hear people use is that, you know, we've reached a place in our life where we're living comfortably in reference to finances. And a question I want to ask in relationship to that is this. If you're living comfortably, are you living biblically? If you're living comfortably, are you living biblically? In light of what the Scripture teaches, not just in this passage of Scripture, but in so many other passages of Scripture, about the importance of sacrificial giving, about the importance of of grace giving, about being willing to minister to the needs of other people, if if you reach a point in in your life financially where you're living comfortably, is that really truly living biblically? Because God oftentimes uses, uses our giving to stretch our faith to be willing to trust him more. And if God has provided for you in a financial way that you're living comfortably, maybe God wants you to not live comfortably by giving more, by by being willing to to have your faith stretched in the area of finances, in the area of stewardship. I mean, think about it this way. In every area of the Christian life, we think of our Christian life as a matter of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is this. Is it's the, it's the, the Spirit of God using the Word of God to make the child of God more like the Son of God. The Spirit of God using the Word of God to make the child of God more like the Son of God. So the second you're saved, you're sanctified. 
And the, and the second you step into heaven, you're, you're ultimately, finally sanctified. But between that positional sanctification at the moment of salvation and that final sanctification when you're in the presence of God, God is in the process of changing you, growing you, developing you to be more like Christ, and stretching your faith as you become more like Christ, okay? So in every area of our Christian life, every other area of our Christian life, people are, I hope, you're trying to grow, Right? You're trying to grow more like Jesus. You're, you're trying to grow in terms of your prayer life, in term, terms of your knowledge of Scripture, in terms of, of being filled with the Spirit so that you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. So there's this progressive growth that's going on in your life. So we're all trying to grow. But you know what happens to a lot of Christians? In the area of stewardship, they reach 10% and go, that's all God expects. I'm done. I mean, do you, do you have that mindset? toward your prayer life? Do you have that mindset in relationship to witnessing? Do you have that mindset in relationship to learning more about God through the Bible? No, I I hope not anyway, that you have the mindset of progressive sanctification where God is growing you and stretching you and making you more like Christ. So why is it that so many Christians stop at 10% and just say, oh, good. You know, for some Christians, they may have started tithing when they were a teenager. So that was the end of their, their progressive sanctification in the area of stewardship. I think God wants us to grow when it comes to our stewardship just as much as he wants us to grow in every area of, a, of our spiritual life. And part of how he does that is by stretching us to give more than maybe we're comfortable giving. Have you ever done that? Where you, where you just simply ask God, should, should we give more? in light of the needs of the world, in light of the untold billions that are still untold, are you willing to give more and then trust God to meet your needs as you do so? I was excited. I did not know this, okay, before I showed up on Sunday. I was excited to hear that you have faith promise here at at Harvest Baptist Church because one of the beauties of faith promise giving to missions is, is that you're asked to do the very thing I just preached about. You're asked to think in, in light of how God is providing for you and in light of the needs of the world when it comes to global missions, am I willing to make a, a commitment on a weekly or a monthly? And I don't, I don't know the specifics of how you do it here. I, just, I grew up with it as a, in my church I grew up in as a teenager. And I remember for the very first time as a teenager giving to Faith Promise because God was burdening my heart to be able to give directly to missions. But part of the challenge of that is, okay, can I trust the Lord to to give X number of dollars on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or an annual basis to take the gospel to the world. And I hope that you as individuals, as couples, as a church family are prayerfully saying to God, what does God want us to give this year to to support global missions so that there aren't missionaries who who in, in desperation give up even trying to raise support because they can't raise it. No, that the, the, the gospel is taken because of the generosity of God's people who are willing to trust the Lord to meet their needs, to believe that he will provide for them, to believe this very promise that is given here in Scripture. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you live like you believe that? It's so essential to the spread of the gospel around the world, that believers live with that kind of confidence. Contentment is essential. Confidence is essential. And then finally, clarity is essential. 
Verses 14 through 20 describe that clarity in a number of different ways. We'll note two different or three different principles in connection with that clarity when it says this in verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know that, that also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only for in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Notice three principles here in relationship to this clarity. And of course, you understand clarity is the ability to see things clearly, Right? So clarity, number one, to see the needs of others, verses 14 through 16. He, he talks about how they shared with him. And, and it's interesting, the word that he uses there for shared is the word koinonia. We get our, our word fellowship from that word. They fellowshiped with him. They were partners with him in, in gospel ministry. Whenever you give to somebody who's serving the Lord, you are partnering with them in gospel ministry. And so they, they, they saw the need of, of the Apostle Paul and how they could minister to him. And he refers to Thessalonica and, and, and the difference there in, in terms of their willingness to share. It's interesting as you read about the different churches. In verse 16, he says, For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again for my necessities. And so they, they ministered to him even when he was in Thessalonica, where Thessalonica perhaps could have supported him themselves. As a matter of fact, Thessalonica was a, was a wealthier city. And yet they, in, in their state of at least fewer resources, were willing to give even when he was in a circumstance where maybe somebody else could have. And so I, I think part of what he's communicating there is just the importance of a willingness to give no matter what someone else's resources or responsibilities are. You understand God is more consider, con, concerned about the size of your compassion than he is about the size of your contribution. And so clarity to see the needs of others. Secondly, clarity to see Giving as an eternal investment. Verse 16, he goes on to say this, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. It's interesting the verbiage that Paul uses here. He uses the the word fruit, which literally means profit. Profit. I I seek this profit to to your account, that it would abound to your account. And again, he's using uh, financial terms. Every one of us has has an eternal... Reward account in heaven is basically what he's saying. That we are making deposits into every day, not just financially, but in terms of faithfulness, in terms of serving the Lord and and redeeming the time. But when we give, we are also investing in heavenly rewards that will someday pay dividends in heaven. Of course, that will be in direct proportion to not just our generosity, but our generosity in proportion to our resources. The Bible teaches that over and over and over again. Verses like Proverbs 22.9 where the Bible says, He who is generous will be blessed. Or verses where Jesus said in Luke 6.38, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus also said in Matthew 6.19-20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know about you, but that, that very last part of that last verse, I used to always quote backwards. I, I, I mixed it up. It, it goes like this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We have a tendency to think that where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Randy Alcorn, by the way, wrote a great little book called The Treasure Principle where he makes a a big emphasis of this. And basically what he says is this, is that the order is significant because our hearts follow our treasures. Our hearts follow our treasures. The things that you love 
that's where your heart's going to go. And so our hearts follow our treasures. And so it's so important because contentment is, is, is crucial to giving, but giving is also crucial to contentment, back to the, where we started. And that when we give, then, then all of a sudden we find ourselves being more content because our, our values are eternal in nature. And we realize that I didn't need that latest cell phone and I didn't need this gadget or I didn't need those clo- that clothing or I didn't need that nicer car or the bigger house. I didn't need this because what I just did instead is I gave to something that's eternal, decided to give up something that I didn't really need that badly in the first place and didn't bring me nearly as much happiness as I thought it would. And all of a sudden my heart starts to become more eternally minded and as my heart becomes eternally minded, I find out all the stuff that I thought would bring me satisfaction from a material perspective really wasn't that important in the first place. And it all works together. We're, we're giving breeds a spirit of contentment and contentment breeds a spirit of giving. And, and all that goes together so that we as Christians can store up treasures in heaven in that eternal investment account in heaven. I would ask you tonight in relationship to that, how big is the balance in your heavenly account? How big is the balance in your heavenly account? And so we need clarity to see giving as an eternal investment. Finally, we need clarity to see giving as a sacrifice given to the Lord. A sacrifice given to the Lord. Notice the way he describes their giving in verse 18. It's really beautiful language. Verse 18, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. And then notice the way he describes their gift. He describes it with Old Testament language. The Old Testament language of a sacrifice. He says this, A sweet-smelling aroma. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to... To whom? Well-pleasing to God. To God. When you give, you give to God. Sometimes we get that backwards. Sometimes we think, well, I give to my church. No, when you, when you put an offering in the offering plate, you're not really giving to harvest. I know they, they'll receive it for you, okay? But you're, you're ultimately, you're giving to the Lord, and it's this beautiful sacrifice. It's like an Old Testament sacrifice where the one who is enjoying it, your sacrifice, your gift, is, is God. Giving to God himself. Unfortunately, a lot of us are like the little boy who, who was asked to give a dollar in the offering plate. His mommy gave him a dollar to give in the offering plate, and uh, he decided not to give it. Instead, he handed it to the preacher, and the preacher asked him why he didn't put it in the offering plate. He said, well, my mama says you're the poorest preacher our church has ever had, so I figured you needed it more than God did. <laughs> we don't give it to the preacher. We give it to the Lord. We give it to the Lord. And so we need clarity to see giving as a sacrifice given to the Lord. I say clarity because... One of the things I, I struggle with is being extremely nearsighted. As a matter of fact, I've been, I've been trying to find out, because we want to go snorkeling after, after our time of ministry here, and I've been trying to find out whether or not I can get prescription goggles on the island. If any of you know any, come talk to me afterwards, okay? Because when I take my glasses off, I am legally blind, okay? So I look out across, and you go from being faces to being blobs, okay? Don't take it personally that I describe you in that way, Okay? 
But my, there's no clarity right now when my glasses come off of, of my face. It's just one big kind of melded together bunch of colors, okay? And I wonder at times if some Christians don't see giving with clarity. They don't see it with the clarity of, of the needs of, of, of missionaries and the needs of ministries. They don't see it with the clarity of, when I give, it's an eternal investment. They don't see it with the clarity of ultimately the one I'm giving to and the one I want it to be pleasing to. It's not, it's not about pleasing the pastor. It's not about pleasing the church. It's not about impressing people. The only person I want to please when I give is God. That kind of clarity sees things clearly when it comes to giving. And so do you have that clarity by seeing the needs of others or do you just see your own needs? Do you have that kind of clarity by by investing in eternity, are you wasting resources on yourself and on earthly things? Do you have that kind of clarity when, when, when realizing you're not giving to the church or to the pastor or even to a missionary? Ultimately, you're giving to God who is so pleased. He's so pleased with your sacrifice and your gift to him.